I'm going to read from the Gospel of John this evening. If you have a Bible with you and would like to turn to John chapter 1, please do so. Here is John's Christmas story. In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life. And that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There is a man sent from God whose name was John, John the Baptist. He came as a witness to testify concerning that light, so that through him all might believe. He himself was not the light. He came only as a witness to the light. You see, the true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world. And though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision or a husband's will, but born of God. The Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. We have seen His glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father full of grace and truth. I want to talk about light this evening. Have you noticed how Christmas lights are turning into to big business these days. Um, I guess it's not terribly new, um, but but people can spend some some big bucks, I imagine, putting Christmas lights on their home, purchasing the lights, or hiring someone to put lights on their home. Especially if you've got the big two story house and don't want to get up on ladders. Uh, like, and I don't blame you. Um, and uh, you can pay lots of money to go see Christmas lights, too. There's, there's no shame in this next question, but raise your hand if you have spent some good money going to see a Christmas light display. At least, at least one person. One person. This is a good, good use of money. Because, more. Because Christmas lights are beautiful. We love lights. We love light. If, uh, if you've lived in many estates in the Midwest... Uh, and experience kind of the dreary winter months where it's cloudy for weeks and weeks or months and months, you know, it can bring your, your mood down a little bit. At least it did for me living uh, in Illinois for six years. You get kind of dreary in the wintertime because it's, it's not bright outside. It's dark and dim. We love light, which makes something that John writes a little hard to really understand, and that's, well, actually we didn't read it in, in chapter 1. I want to want to jump ahead to John chapter 3 and put a, a verse on the screen for you. John chapter 3, verse 19. So John also writes, This light has come into the world, but people love darkness 
instead of light. It's hard for us to really understand that verse. Most people would categorically reject that statement about themselves. Most people, Christian or not, would say, yeah, I don't like darkness. I like light. We don't love darkness. We don't love inner darkness. We don't, we don't, we don't, we don't love outer darkness. We, we don't celebrate uh, you know, the, the war zones that we see going on. Gaza and Israel, we don't celebrate war and destruction going. We don't, we don't, we don't find joy in, in human trafficking. I mean, we don't love darkness. We don't think of white-collar crime, corporate greed, and think that's great. So it can be a little hard to, at least if you're like me, to really resonate with John chapter 3, verse 19. It says people love darkness instead of light. No way. So how is it that people have loved darkness over the light that is Christ? Well, maybe if people mistake darkness for light, that could explain that. If people look at false lights and think of them as, oh, that's, that's real light, uh, that could explain how people reject Christ or not see clearly how Christ brings true light. I want to I look at a few verses from the prophet Isaiah. He writes something about people creating false lights for themselves. So I'm going to read an appeal from John from Isaiah chapter 50 and then a warning. So let's look at uh, verse 10 of Isaiah chapter 50. First, there's this appeal, an invitation. Let the one who walks in the dark, who has no light, trust in the name of the Lord and rely on their God. And then verse 11 starts the warning. But now all of you who light fires and provide yourselves with flaming torches. Now notice what's being said. People are creating sources of light for themselves, sources of meaning, sources of direction, sources of of purpose, without any guidance from God on that. People are creating their own false lights. And then verse 11 continues, Well, if you're doing that, go walk in the light of your fires and of the torches that you have set ablaze. This is what you will receive from my hand. And here's the warning. You will lie down in torment when you create for yourself false lights and call them true light, the light that is Christ. So there's a warning of making our own sources of light. Why the warning? What's the what's 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 so wrong with us? You know, seeking purpose in ourselves, or you know, there's nothing wrong with being creative. You know what I thought of? I thought of that that scene from uh, Castaway with with um, oh Tom Hanks. It's one of the more memorable scenes of the movie. Movie where he remember he's on this this uninhabited island stranded there all by himself, and he, he makes fire, he, create, he, he lights a fire out of nothing, like rubbing sticks together. You remember that scene? He's like, oh, look what I have created. I have created fire. 
look what I can do. And I think that's the warning right there. Largely, we live in a culture that says, look at me. Look what I can do. And puts the self at the very center. But what the world has seen throughout the long centuries is that a life with self as center, always without fail, becomes a self-centered life. And maybe you know people. Who, where it seems like there never is enough for them. You know, their house is always too small, or their car is always too old, or their position at work is never prestigious enough, and simplicity for them is silliness, and they work to, to impress, or dress to impress, or spend to impress, or travel to impress. And maybe the person they most want to impress is themselves. Maybe um, maybe even you have been one of those people at times. I know that I have. I know that I have. And when you put yourself at the center, there's this mantra that you can live by, and it is this, I need to strive in order to thrive. I need to strive to do more and show more and be more in order to thrive, in order for me to impress myself or impress others or to show God that I, I'm really it. I'm really it. And when this crest to thrive, to strive and thrive and prove has been a dominant theme throughout the long centuries, what happens? Well, we, we start building a culture around that, a society around that. We have a society that proves what the old King James Bible reveals in its translation of John chapter 1, verse 5. Let me read that for you. And the light shineth in the darkness, and the darkness comprehended it not. The world, here's what we learn from that. The world left on its own just does not understand the ways of Christ and the ways of Christ's light. Because we simply, the world left on its own simply wants to prove our worth too much. See, the problem with strive in order to thrive, prove, the problem when those are key words in our heart is that it can be very difficult to trust that God loves you, that he really loves you and is delighted with you when your life is built around trying to impress. Because it's not too long when we want to impress ourselves and others that we want to start impressing God because we think it's by doing so that we will know if I impress him enough, maybe, yeah, maybe I can know, maybe I can know, maybe I can know that he loves me. So how do you know that God loves you? For many people, that question has one of two answers. And the first is, well, you can't really know that God loves you, and you can never know. And so you live with this angst, if that's how you see it, that you can never know. And the second way that many people answer that question, how can you know that God loves you, is, well, you can know God loves you if you do good things. Now, is there anything wrong with doing good things? Well, 
I mean, good things are, are great. I mean, the, on not a small number of occasions, the Bible encourages us to do good things. Doing good things is a good thing. But here's the deal. Good things are a terrible way to get God to love you. See, if that's the way to know that God loves you, then we are all in deep trouble. We're all in deep trouble. Because of the darkness that resides in the human heart. When I look at my life, I see that for every good action, there's, there, there's a bad action. And then when I look really deep in my life, <clears throat> I recognize, <clears throat> pardon me, that even in my good actions, if I had to really, really think long and hard about them, I might question, well, what is my motive for doing those good actions? Because I have mixed motives. Sometimes I don't even know what my motives are, but God surely does. God knows that many of my motives are not purely out of love for others. And so if doing good things is the way to get God to love you, we're all in deep trouble. There's a poem that uh, has been running through my head as I've been getting ready for Christmas Eve. So if I can uh, share with you this poem, um, it's from the, the, the 17th century pastor and poet, George Herbert, and it's called Redemption, uh, which is a fantastic poem. If you like poetry, you have to look up George Herbert's poem, Redemption. Um, ultimately, it's, it's about not thriving. Um, it's about his petition to God. And you have to know that he calls this petition in this poetry, he calls it a suit. You have to know that because in the end of the poem, it comes up. You're going to see it on the screen. His suit, that's his petition to God. His petition to know God's love for him. And he first goes to look for God in, in heaven, only to find that God, referred to in the poem by rich Lord, has come to earth. And so he returns in his search for his rich Lord, and he looks at places where you would expect to find such a Lord. And so, in his poem, he writes, I, I straight returned to earth, and knowing his great birth, I sought him accordingly in great resorts and cities and theaters, gardens, parks, and courts. And I want you to think about Jesus' birth for a moment. The Son of God, who was with God and was God, even before there ever was a beginning, that Son of God took on a human body and he was born into our world. And if you were God coming to earth, wouldn't you choose one of those places that George Herbert mentioned in his poem to be born in? You know, a, a garden, a great city, or a, a beautiful park, or a, or a court, just a, a place of, of beauty. If you had to pick your location for your birth or where you would grow up, wouldn't you plant yourself, if you were putting yourself in God's position, in a glitzy resort town or a place of great beauty? I, I, I would. I mean, 
I mean, I would choose, I would choose River Oaks, Houston. That, that beautiful neighborhood. We went and looked at Christmas lights there a few nights ago where the, you know, the super high finance homes in, in Houston are. I'd be a, I'd choose a River Oaks home. I'd choose a fancy home. But God chose not to be born in River Oaks. But, but more like the river bottom. At Christmas, if you went to the flashiest town around to see this newborn Jesus, if you, would, if you went to the flashiest town around Jerusalem, would you have found the Son of God? No, you wouldn't have. That's what the Magi, the, you know, the wise men from the east, they tried to do that. They, they went to Jerusalem first expecting the, 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 the newborn king of the Jews to, to be in the flashy city, but... The answer was no. They had to go to this tiny, tiny, tiny village of Bethlehem to go see where the Son of God was born. So why did God choose this small little town? Why born into this poor little family? Well, I'll tell you, I'll I'll give you two reasons. One, if Jesus were born to a distinguished family or in a prominent area, in a glitzy town, in comfort, most of us would have a hard time relating to this, this beautiful verse 14. John chapter 1, 14, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. See, if he were a River Oaks baby, born to a River Oaks family, the other 99% of us would say, oh, no, that's not being born among us. That's being born born among them. And I ain't one of them. I'm an outsider. And if that is where Jesus was born, then I am an outsider to him as well. Second reason, if Jesus were born into wealth or into prestige... I think we still would have a very legitimate question. Was it really much of a sacrifice to put on human flesh? And therefore, what really is the depths of God's love? So let me tell you how deep God's love is. God's love is this deep, that the one through whom all things were created, the one who created the galaxies and the planets and your very life, was willing to experience all the darkness that the world experiences. God was willing to become vulnerable and be born in this this little no-name town to this impoverished family. And like I mentioned earlier tonight, it wasn't long before Jesus and Joseph and Mary had to flee to Egypt because King Herod was out to kill the young child Jesus. He didn't have the magical get-out-of-Herod's-grasp-free card. He was willing to become vulnerable and be on the run. And in that, he shows us what kind of love he loves us with. It is the love that is willing to lay down his life for another. And that is exactly what Jesus did for you. He came for you. He died for you because he loves you. So the end of, end of uh, George Herbert's 
poem, Redemption. He searched all the ritzy places to find where the rich Lord was born. And he writes, after he looked for God in all of the lavish places of the world, he instead finds him in the lowest of places. And here's how the poem ends. At length I heard a ragged noise and mirth of thieves and murderers. There I him espied, who straight your suit is granted, your petition is granted, said. And he died. See, Jesus was born humbly, and he died sacrificially for you, so that you could know exactly how God feels about you and how to have this life with God. You were worth, get this, you were worth the Son of God leaving heaven, taking on human flesh, and dying brutally on the cross. You were worth it. You were worth it. And that's not coming from me. That's coming from the Lord. You were worth it. As the carol says, Long lay the world in sin and error, pining till he appeared, and the soul felt its worth. So Jesus arrived in such humble conditions so that you could know you're worth it. You're worth it. That is what sacrificial love shows you. How do you know that God loves you? It's not by earning. It's not by doing good, good things. It's not by acting. It's not by performing. It's not by proving. It's not by saying, I think I'm doing more things. I hope I'm doing more th- good things. No, it's... It's only by receiving God's love from receiving. That's the key word, receiving God's love from him. In other words, it's a gift. And it always, God's love always will be something you receive as a gift. And you receive it, as we read in John chapter 1, through believing that Jesus truly is the Son of God, the Word of God. Of God. And then once you've received his gift, you can then live according to his way, the way that he shines, illuminates with his light, and that is sacrificial love to others. See, Christmas is not about upward pursuit but rather a downward pursuit. That's the path that Jesus took for you, that downward pursuit. Christmas isn't about proving your worth by lighting your own torches, but rather by receiving this gift of God's love. So receive his gift tonight. Let's say, Amen. Gracious Lord and Savior Jesus. Lord, we are lost without you. 
we know worth a thing or two about lighting our own torches. Trying to do the things so that we can convince ourselves that we um, were on the right track in life to prove to others, to self, to you, that we're worth it. Lord, we know a thing or two about lighting our own torches, and we want to, instead tonight, we want to receive your light. We want to live by your light, this downward descent of sacrificially loving and serving others, just like Christ loved and served us to the point of death. Help us to walk in his light. And we thank you for the gift, the true gift of your love. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.